Will you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, Romans 1. And we want you to be able to see the passages we'll be considering this morning. The guys have some Bibles, so as they make their way to the back, just get their attention. They'll get a Bible to you that you can keep. That's our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of the Scriptures, and that is marked at Romans 1. So you can go directly there. We'll be looking at some passages in the book of Romans in just a bit. The Bible tells us in the first part of your Bible, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's why Augustine said famously in the fourth century, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Restlessness is a universal trait of the human heart. God has put eternity in our hearts, and we have an inconsolable longing. And we try to satisfy that longing in various ways, with vacations and accomplishments, sex, sports, and drugs, and drink, and work, and family, but the restlessness is still there. Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 55, "'Why spend money on what is not bread?' And your labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that your soul may live. And Jeremiah said it this way. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns. Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Many of you here this morning are like that. One preacher put it this way, your soul is hungry, your heart is thirsty. You feel an insatiable longing for something. You are restless. Almost everywhere you turn, the grass is greener than where you stand. And the great tragedy for some of you is that even though this is the Spirit of God beckoning you to Himself, you turn away again and again to short-run, temporary, backfiring pleasures of sensuality, of drugs, of alcohol, some new look or some new toy. And none of it satisfies The thrill of lust leaves the sediment of guilt and loneliness. The drugs and alcohol can't keep you from waking up in the real world again and again with all of your messed up relationships. That new look is so artificial and it fades so quickly. The new toy is so boring in just a few weeks. We drink at broken cisterns. And we eat bread which does not satisfy. The words of C.S. Lewis ring more and more true. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is, I was made for another world. Ah, but money can fix anything, right? Even riches don't satisfy. Listen to this story from the New York Times from a few years ago. For Mac Metcalf and his estranged second wife, Virginia Merida, sharing a $34 million lottery jackpot in 2000 meant escaping poverty at a breakneck speed. Years of blue-collar struggle and ramshackle apartment life gave way almost overnight to limitless leisure, big houses, lavish toys. 
Mr. Metcalf bought a Mount Vernon-like estate in southern Kentucky, stocking it with horses and vintage cars. Ms. Merida bought a Mercedes-Benz and a modernistic mansion overlooking the Ohio River. But trouble came almost as fast. And though there have been many stories of lottery winners turning to drugs and alcohol or lottery fortunes turning to dust, the tale of Metcalf and Merida stands out as a striking example of good luck, the kind most people only dream about rapidly turning fatally bad. Mr. Metcalf's first wife sued him for $31,000 in unpaid child support. A former girlfriend wheedled $500,000 out of him while he was drunk. And alcoholism increasingly paralyzed him. Ms. Merida's boyfriend died of a drug overdose in her hilltop house. A brother began harassing her, she said. Neighbors came to believe her once welcoming home had turned into a drug den. And though they were divorced by 2001, it was as if their lives as rich people had taken on an eerie symmetry. And so did their deaths. In 2003, just three years after cashing in his winning ticket, Mr. Metcalf died of complications relating to alcoholism at the age of 45. And then on the day before Thanksgiving, Ms. Merida's partly decomposed body was found in her bed. Authorities said they found no evidence of foul play, and it appears it was the result of a drug overdose. She was 51. New circumstances that money can buy only bring new problems. And what we need, friends, is not new circumstances, but a new life. Simply changing what's going on outside of me does not change what's going on inside of me. We can run and change and move all we want. We can run, but we cannot hide from our hearts. We do not need primarily a change of address. What we need most desperately is a change of heart. And so then we say, well, when all else fails, start going to church, get religious, that's got to do the trick. My dear, godly, and now with the Lord, as of almost two years ago, mother, when she would preach at one of her four boys about our ways, she would often say, bless her heart, son, you need to get in church. And I've talked with many people over the years who, when they find out I'm a pastor, might begin telling me their struggles, but they'll often add my mom's advice, I need to get in church, pastor. Now, I'm all for going to church, as you might expect. But understand this, following religious rules and going to church will fail just like the other things we've mentioned. Because they, they all have something in common, namely, they deal with the outside. They deal with the external, external circumstances, external behavior, when in fact the problem is internal. Going to church and obeying the rules does not get to the heart of the matter. Even religion like riches and sex and alcohol and work and all the rest is a matter of looking for life in all of the wrong places. So where do we find the life that we so desperately need? Well, beginning last week and then for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the good news that is the gospel. And as I explained last week, we're doing that because at this juncture in the life of our church, we now having acquired this place to carry on the Lord's work, have the opportunity to bring more and more people to the Lord Jesus. But we need to make sure we are clear about what those people that God is bringing us in contact with, what it is that they most truly need 
at the most basic level. And so we want to make sure that we are clear on the gospel message. And so we want to know where it is that we and others find life, and we've titled this series then, The Gospel for Real Life. And you had inserted in your program an outline at the top of that. We have a definition then of this good news, the gospel. And it is this. The gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin. He's done so through the life, the death, and the resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has overcome our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. So picture one who is swimming in the ocean. They've drifted away from the shore. They're caught in a violent storm. He's thrashing around, trying to find strength to hang on, but he's going down for the third time. And just then, as if out of nowhere, comes a life preserver, and the beleaguered swimmer grabs on and is pulled ashore and saved. Now, no doubt, he'd be, we ought all be grateful to the one who saved us in those kinds of dire circumstances. But did you know that the gospel is much more marvelous than that? Because you see, we're not going down for the third time. The Bible teaches we're already floating on top of the water. Absolutely lifeless and without any ability to help ourselves or, now get this, or to respond to help from anybody else. God fishes our spiritually dead bodies out of the ocean and He breathes life into us. How does He do that? The Bible tells us He does two things to the spiritually dead when He saves or delivers or rescues them from their dead, sinful condition. Now, we have those two in the outline that's inserted. We're going to try to look at those two in the brief time that we have, and then you have four more aspects of the gospel that we'll consider over the next few weeks. But the first of those is he calls, he effectually calls. And that's one of the synonyms for a Christian. A genuine believer in Jesus Christ is that she's been called. And so Romans chapter 1, I've asked you to turn there. Verse 7. This letter is written to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So the, this group of people are those who are in the category of, of the called. But what specifically does, does that mean? Now we looked at last week in the first message in this mini-series, Romans chapter 8. And if you will just turn a few pages over to Romans chapter 8, you'll see that word again then. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. Those God predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. So there is this special category of people who, who have been called. Those people who have been called are people who God has set His affection on, as we saw last week, in eternity past predestined. In time, He called and justified. And in eternity future, those people will most certainly be glorified. And in life right now then, that makes a profound difference. 
Because if you'll look just two verses prior to verse 30, this famous verse in chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to His purpose. And so there's no doubt that Christians are called in a special way by God. And He's the one who takes the initiative in this because He must because we are spiritually dead. And that's why Jesus said, Matthew 22, many are called, but few are chosen. That is, every time the gospel is preached and people hear it, those people are being called to believe in Jesus for their rescue, for their salvation. So many are called. But because of our dead condition, we don't respond unless God does a special work in us. The Bible describes the difference this way in 1 Corinthians 1. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. That would be everybody. But to those whom God has called, both from Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now notice that the saved and the called are the same people. And the difference between those that are called is that they see the gospel in a radically different way. To those not called in this special way, it is foolishness. To those in whom God has done a work, it is the power of God. The difference between those that are called by God and those who simply hear words is that God opens their eyes and ears so that they see and hear the gospel in a radically different way. And that's why the next chapter after that one in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 quotes the first part of your Bible saying, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him, these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. He considers them foolishness. He cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit. Now notice, no eye or ear or mind understands God's message and His plan unless God turns the light on and they see it for what it is. So two people hear the exact same message and they respond quite differently. And why is that? Because many are called and few are chosen. And the difference is the work of God on the mind of that individual, opening that mind now, that previously closed mind, to the truth of the good news of the gospel. So Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And when that happens, the spiritually blind and deaf see and hear and they respond. And that's what you have then in the chart, on the outline. You see, the gospel is the glorious message that God's grace has delivered us, has saved us from our sin. And that chart shows you the various ways that the different facets of the good news deliver us from different aspects of our sin. And first of all, God has to effectively, effectually call us 
And in so doing, that delivers us from the persuasion of sin. The persuasion of sin. And it gives us a new perspective, a radically new perspective. Now, here's what that means then. God's grace in effectual calling delivers us from the persuasion of sin, giving us a new perspective on Him, on ourselves, on others. And so here's practically what that means. Understand this, friends. Salvation is God's initiative. We are dependent on Him for it. We are dependent on Him for results when we give the gospel. That's why we pray to Him for effectiveness in the gospel message. And it's humbling for us because the difference is one that but for the grace of God, so go we. And how long does God call His sheep? It may be many months. It may be many years. But God's sheep, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. His sheep will respond to His voice. That means on a personal level, that means on a pastoral level as well, that when we give the gospel, hear this, we're not salespeople. We're not trying to close the deal. You know that? Because people are not brought to Christ and do not embrace the gospel message because of our appeal. They embrace it because of the work of God on the heart of that individual. God in His grace then takes the initiative in calling us. And then He takes the initiative to do a second thing that we desperately need. He makes us fully alive spiritually. And I invite you to turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. So if you don't know where John is, just turn to the left a bit. Keep turning until you see John. Then at the top it will say John 3. Many of you may be familiar with this famous encounter between Jesus and an ultra-religious churchgoer who was nevertheless empty inside. If there was ever a man who had his act together, it was this man. And yet despite his resume and his piety, even his sincerity, Jesus told this man he needed to be made spiritually alive. He needed to be born again. And so important was this issue that when Jesus encounters this man, he introduces it abruptly. He cuts through all the small talk, all the pleasantries and formalities, and he says in verse 1, I tell you the truth, Or excuse me, verse 3, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And Jesus does this because the new birth, being made spiritually alive, is in fact mankind's greatest need. Every person needs to be born again, including this guy, Nicodemus. Verse 1 tells us about him. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So who is this guy? Well, you might say in modern parlance, he's a a religious nut. A Bible thumper, we might say. A guy who took his religion really seriously. He was a man of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who were extremely meticulous in their religious observance. And the group to which Nicodemus belonged, the Pharisees, were legalists. That is, they believed that you find favor with God by keeping religious rules, and they imposed those man-made rules on others. And that's why Jesus said of them in another place, 
They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them, to relieve those burdens. But something was apparently stirring within Nicodemus because verse 2 says he approached Jesus at night, possibly so that he would not be seen. In the words of pastor and author Erwin Lutzer in his excellent book, How You Can Be Sure You Will Spend Eternity with God, says Nicodemus had rules, but he did not have reality. Though he was admired as good, he did not have God. No matter how pious he was on the outside, he was rotting within. In fact, though he didn't know it yet, his religion was more of a hindrance than a help. And so, so much for the argument, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're what? Sincere. Nicodemus needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity. And beyond that, Nicodemus needed to be born again regardless of his high religious position. The passage says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. It's called the Sanhedrin. It's a very limited group of 70 of the most notable religious leaders of the day. They governed religious affairs in the nation of Israel. In order to be a part of that group, you had to be a man of remarkable talents and influence, one who was respected and one who was followed by many individuals within that society. He not only needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity and in spite of his religious position, but he needed to be born again despite his religious knowledge. In verse 10, notice what it says. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? And in the Greek language in which your New Testament was written, it says literally, you are the teacher of Israel. Not only was Nicodemus a member of the Sanhedrin, he was also in an official teaching position, and he was looked at with respect as the chief religious instructor in the nation. Hear this, friends. Everyone needs to be born again. And in verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus says straight up, this applies then to everyone. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom unless he is born again. And so the new birth is mankind's greatest needs, greatest need, and it's accomplished only by God, Jesus tells this man. Just a couple of months ago, we celebrated New Year's. Many of us made resolutions of all sorts, lose some weight, start exercising, get our finances together, start attending a community group or community institute, start reading the Bible, and on it goes. How are you doing with all that? We've all failed at keeping our own promises. We have trouble keeping our earthly commitments. Hear this now. How in the world are we supposed to help ourselves spiritually? We can't say, friends, I don't need God. We desperately need Him to give us spiritual life because we can't affect true inward change in ourselves. And so Nicodemus says in verse 4, How can a man be born when he is old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb. He doesn't understand at this point, but he knows that whatever Jesus means by born again, he can't do it. And in fact, that's the case. We cannot make ourselves spiritually alive. The Bible says very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, You are dead in your sins. And a dead man can do absolutely nothing to help himself. And so with all of our resolutions and with all of our turning over a new leaf, we cannot muster up the strength 
to create spiritual life within us. It's accomplished only by the Spirit of God. And so in verse 5, Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to spirit. It's not humanly possible for us to create spiritual life because flesh only gives birth to flesh. And human attempts cannot accomplish spiritual life. In fact, we see this just a, a few pages back. Just hold your finger in chapter 3. If you look at chapter 1, we're told that we can become children of God in verse 13, but notice, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. You see, the Spirit must do it. And when He does, He reproduces in kind. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. The Holy Spirit then gives spiritual life. Now, I don't have time, nor do I want to get bogged down in the details of verse 5 where Jesus says that you were born of water and of the Spirit. But I just want to say something about that reference to water because incredibly some have tried to see baptism here and then tie baptism to be born, born, being born again. But I want you to notice baptism is not mentioned at all in this passage. And further, now hear this, if this new birth were dependent on anything you do like baptism, then it would mean you control it and determine when it happens, which is diametrically opposite the point that Jesus is making. That you don't control it. It's the Spirit who controls it. In verse number 8, notice, Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And so it is not what we do. It is what He does on us and in us. And so the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Bible says again in Ephesians 2, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if baptism were part of this process, it would mean you would control it, and it would be by your work, both of which are ruled out in Scripture. But there is a passage in your Bible, the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, that part of the Bible for which Nicodemus was supposed to be an expert that tells us that water and cleansing are symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Through the prophet Ezekiel, here's what the Bible says. I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. Jesus' illustration of the wind, then, is particularly poignant in this, in this passage. 
Because he is making the point that it is the Spirit and it is the Spirit's good pleasure and not anything that we do. And the word that is used, the Greek word that is used, is the same word in your New Testament for both spirit and breath and wind. And so when he refers to the physical wind blowing in verse 8, he's using the same word as spirit. And he's saying that the work of the Spirit is neither understood nor is it controlled. I mean, those of us who have come to God through Jesus Christ, and we can remember, many of us, very vividly when that happened. I can remember at age 19 being in my bedroom, reading Ephesians chapter 2, which as a boy I had read and heard many, many times. And I remember that the Spirit of God moved on my mind and heart so that I understood that in a way I never had before. Now, I don't understand what all was going on there other than God did a work on my mind and in my heart. And from that point on, I've had a new relationship with Him. I don't, didn't control it. I don't fully understand the work of the Spirit. That's why we have a hymn that says in part, I know not how the Spirit moves convincing men of sin, revealing Jesus through the Word, creating faith in Him. But I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed unto Him against that day. And so for those who have never come to Christ, realize this, friends, you don't control it. And so you do not say what some of you have said. I'll get around to it. As you hear the call of the gospel, as the Spirit of God moves on your heart, you respond, today is the day of salvation. And this is also important for those of us who profess faith in Jesus. There is, in fact, an effect that takes place when God implants new life. So, friends, we cannot presume, hear this, that all is right between us and God if there has been no change in our lives. When one is born again, when the Spirit imparts new life, There is change. It may begin slowly at first, but there is most definitely change. Since this is the work of God, the good news is there is no one beyond His ability to save. It doesn't matter what your background may be. It doesn't matter what you may have done or what has been done to you. God can save. Jesus goes on to explain all the way through verse 15 to Nicodemus that this believing now in him that results from the move of the Spirit on the heart of that spiritually dead person involves verses 9 through 12, understanding the truth. That's why Jesus chides him. You're the the teacher in Israel. You don't understand these things. And so Jesus is making it plain to him now. It involves uh, understanding, and it also involves, in verse 14, Jesus saying that no one has gone to heaven except for me and come back from, from heaven, come down from heaven. And what Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who has authority to give this life. And so, Nicodemus, in order for you to have faith in the God who saves, it means you understand the message that He's given you, and it also means that you submit to His Lordship because He has this unique authority. And it involves trust in Jesus' sacrifice. In verse 14 of John chapter 3, 
Jesus says, just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, some of you may remember that story of the serpent in the wilderness, a bronze serpent that Moses was told to put on a pole. And the people were suffering in the wilderness from disease, and they were told that if you will look to that, that pole, and if you will look to the serpent that is on that pole, just look, you will be healed. And Jesus is saying now, as I am lifted up, and as I who have no sin take your sin upon myself, if you look to me believing the truth about who you are and who I am and what you need, you will be spiritually healed as well. Verse 15 tells us that as a result of that, God moving on the heart, our response of faith, believing in the message of the gospel, the authority of Jesus, looking to Him in trusting faith and His his sacrifice on the cross, it produces eternal life that is a present possession. Verse 15, everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. Believe. Hear His word. Recognize His authority. Trust His sacrifice and you will have life. So Jesus has this encounter with this guy, this religious guy, Nicodemus. Whatever became of him? We see him toward the end of John's gospel one more time. John chapter 19, here's what the Bible says. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came, took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. Apparently, Nicodemus got it, and he became a follower of of Jesus. And so God effectively calls us, delivering us by His grace from the persuasion of sin, giving us a new perspective. And then the second thing He does in your outline is in His grace, He regenerates us. That is, He gives us spiritual life, gives us new birth. We're born again. And that rescues us, saves us, delivers us from the power of sin. And it yields for us, it gives us a new heart, a new heart. Now, there are several other aspects to the gospel message, but friends, and we'll see those over the next couple of weeks, but we're going to finish by going to the Lord in prayer. But in a message like this, where the gospel has gone forth, where everyone has heard, I trust everyone has listened, and now we want to see who is called and give you opportunity to respond in faith. So we're going to bow before the Lord. And as we do, what should you do? You say, I don't have this, I have not, did not come into this room possessing this gift of eternal life. What do I do now? The Spirit is calling me. I see who I am. I see who Jesus is. I see what I need. And so you realize that you're a sinner. You recognize, as we say on the screen, that Jesus is the sacrifice for your sin, all of them, past, present, and future. Repent. 
I recognize your authority. You're my Lord. I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what that means. You receive Jesus Christ into your life. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to come up front. We're not going to ask you to come up front. Sometimes people ask me, why don't you have folks come up front in an invitation? Well, you know, just to be perfectly frank, ain't nothing special about up front. I mean, really. God's Spirit is moving on your heart right where you are. You receive Him right where you are. Sometimes people say, well, what about an altar call? Well, here's the thing. For an altar call, you've got to have an altar. <laughs> and I don't mean because we're in this thing, okay? I mean, even when we renovate in the second phase, there will be no altar. There will be no altar. In a gospel-believing church, the only altar we have is the cross of Jesus, where one sacrifice has been given once for all. So ain't nothing special about up front. This is not a place where sacrifice occurs. It is not an altar. You can and you must receive Christ right where you are. And so let's bow together. And you pour out your heart to God, acknowledging your sin, Him as your Savior and your Lord, and receive Him into your life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the beauty of the gospel message, which alone has the power to give us what we most desperately need, to change us from within. Lord, we run from one remedy, a short-term remedy, to the next. But you have supplied all we need in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your Spirit is moving on the hearts of men and women and young people right now, and that you are drawing them to yourself. You are opening their minds and hearts, calling them out of their lethargy and their spiritual death, and making them alive so that they are now ready and eager to receive what you offer in Jesus. You're giving them that new heart. You're giving them that new perspective on themselves and on you and on others. Lord, I pray that that lives are being changed as I pray to you right now, that will grow in you and become servants for you to bring glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.